One of the lessons I've learned in martial arts is that standing still is asking to be hit. If you stand still in business, your competition is gonna catch up. I start each morning practicing martial arts because it brings me balance and focus. And I wanna know how others stay motivated as well. So join me for conversations on business, innovation, and entrepreneurship. I'm Dan Schulman. Welcome to Never Stand Still. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan Schulman, president and CEO of PayPal. And welcome to another episode of Never Stand Still. Today, I'm thrilled to have with me uh, Don Porter. Uh, Don is an acclaimed and award-winning uh, documentary filmmaker. Her work has appeared on both national and global platforms, including HBO, PBS, Discovery, and Netflix. I'm sure there are others as well, Dawn. Um, she has directed many uh, films, to name a few, Gideon's Army, Spies of Mississippi, Trapped, and Bobby Kennedy for President. She is currently working on a multi-part documentary series. I'm gonna drop some names here with Oprah Winfrey and Prince Harry, um, which is focused actually on um, a topic that I think is very relevant for our day around uh, both mental illness and mental well-being. And I think uh, in today's COVID world, there is uh, uh, a real focus on this as well. And her latest film, is about Congressman John Lewis. Um, John Lewis, who I had a chance to meet uh, about a year uh, or so ago, is an American hero. Uh, he is a icon around um, not just civil rights, but uh, a warrior around social justice. Um, and um, the film is Good Trouble, is fantastic, and really so perfectly timed uh, for the moment uh, that we are in. And first of all, Don, I want to welcome you um, to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Um, and then maybe we can go into uh, a little bit uh, of your work. And maybe I'll start off with the uh, documentary that you just put out on, uh, on uh, Congressman Lewis. Um, you know, the timing is perfect um, because this, the, the attention and the acute focus that is on all of the issues that Congressman Lewis stood up for um, and still advocates for uh, to this day um, is more important than ever. But as you think about the introduction of the documentary right now, how do you think it will be uh, received um, as opposed to when you were making it initially? Thank you for for having me. It's uh, a real pleasure. And, uh, you know, you're doing something that we really need, which is having conversations. Um, the one thing about the pandemic is it's given us the time to think and be reflective. And uh, while I certainly cannot minimize uh, the devastation for so many families, I try to look for silver linings in difficult situations, and this that's what I've come up with. So um, what I would say is when we started, I was very interested in 
what happens to people who begin their careers with such a huge impact in the world? You know, where do you go from there? Um, But also there was this question kind of running around in my mind about, do protests still matter? (laughs) You know, is that still a legitimate form of civic participation? Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was just, I went into that with an open mind. I mean, I did not go into that with, uh, you know, an answer. And I wondered what the congressman believed about that. And so when we started making the film, it was so clear to me that he still believed that this is the, you know, that taking to the streets, speaking up, saying things, that is what is your obligation as a citizen. That is the price of being American, if you will. Um, so so as we, I realized how fundamental, you know, that concept is of speaking out, taking to the streets, I thought, oh boy, we're going to have to convince people of how important it is <laughs> to step out. So... Fast forward, we do not have to convince anybody of the need for that kind of participation. Um, I think that instead our real focus is on whether that participation, um, you know, people felt the need to participate. And now I think it's what's next, you know, convincing people that their efforts and their their willingness to take to the streets and their their, you know, really putting their hearts on their sleeves in some ways. And, and, and that makes you vulnerable, right? You're, you're stepping out. Um, a lot of us are used to now creating a persona on social media. We only tweet about the good things. We only show our pictures when we look, you know, thin and happy. <laughs> um, so there's something revealing and, uh, you know, kind of naked about just being out together. So um, I think the the question for people now is, you know, what's next? And and that's what we can learn from Congressman Lewis is, you know, their protests were different from what we're seeing now. They planned, they were strategists, and they had a very long-term plan. Like any, you will probably say this, you, you don't have a one-week plan nope. for your company, do you? You probably have a one year, a three year, a five year, maybe a 10 year. Exactly right. And that's how the civil rights activists approach their work. And I think once you think about that, once you focus on their strategy, then a lot of their actions make a lot of sense. They weren't looking for an immediate reaction, an immediate win. They were looking for systemic change. And they were doing it, you know, one step at a time. Yeah, I think that's one of the really inspiring messages that comes out of uh, the documentary, because I think people are thinking about, is this a moment right now or a movement that's happening? And I think um, after time, some of the protests dissipate, but the need for progress remains. And I think the congressman's um, fight over 40 years um, is really inspiring. And it says that the work is never done. Um, there are moments where it sort of invades our national consciousness. But what needs to happen is when it starts to fade from that, that we don't dissipate in our efforts to move forward. And uh, I, I think it's a very, he is such an amazing role model. 
Um, and I think we can learn from him today. I, I uh, completely agree. And, you know, I in the last uh, few films I've done, I did a four-part Netflix series on Bobby Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy for President. And, you know, the every film has a central theme, a central animating question. And for me, the Bobby Kennedy film was what inspires someone to change? You know, Bobby Kennedy was not the civil rights crusader for justice that we, you know, revere when he started. He changed. He really changed. And for John Lewis, I felt like the question was, what makes somebody who has never seen equality, how did he even imagine that world? I mean, um, you know, John Lewis grew up in the most calcified, you know, system of segregation that you could imagine. He could not get a library card. He was one of those black boys that grew up in the age of Emmett Till. Yeah. That he knew if he looked or was alleged to have looked at a white woman, it could get him killed. Yeah. So in like that to me is both it's terrifying, but it's also so, I don't know, beautifully American that he could say, this is my current situation, but I know there's more and I'm going to go out and find it or I'm going to make it for myself. And, and that's I, I think that there is so much hope in that, in that that is something about our culture that we are encouraged to imagine beyond our immediate circumstance. And that I think is something that we need right now. We need to imagine the world post this moment. And by that, I mean post COVID, but also post this very uneasy reckoning that that we're living through. Yeah. You know, Don, one of the things you mentioned, uh, Bobby Kennedy, you're doing, um, a multi-part series now with Prince Harry and Oprah on um, mental health. These are all very compelling narratives. Um, and and they're actually narratives that almost are future looking. Like, you know, he probably started uh, with Oprah Winfrey and Prince Harry before this became an acute issue uh, of our time right now. How do you come to those compelling narratives? Like, what is the inspiration for you as you think about where you would focus your next, you know, documentary? Yeah, you know, um, one film often leads to another. Mm -hmm. So the other thing I'm doing, because I don't have enough work, is <laughs> a feature film about Pete Sousa, Obama's White House photographer. Um, so Pete took two million photos during the Obama White House. Wow. And that's right. And he was also a photographer during the Reagan administration. And what the photos show you are the real process, the kind of messiness of government, like how hard it is to actually make a change. You know, politicians run on, you know, this or that platform, but the mechanisms that are in place, both for the safety of democracy, you know, and to slow things down. And we see that that's necessary. So I, I think, you know, to your question, um, films usually take like more than a year, you know, like, so for John Lewis, I worked on it for two years, same with Bobby Kennedy, um, same with Pete Sousa. And there's, you know, usually overlap. And so what I love is that these, 
the themes that emerge from one film, I kind of carry that curiosity to the next. So for John Lewis, um, he told this story. Uh, he was in my Bobby Kennedy series. And he told this story that he was a very young volunteer for Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign. And he had organized a rally in Indianapolis in 1968. And uh, it was the day that Martin Luther King was killed. Mm. So the rally had already been planned. All of these black people were showing up to hear Kennedy. This was a huge constituency for him. And Kennedy's white advisor said, you cannot speak. There's going to be riots. There's going to be, it's going to be dangerous. You have to cancel. And a very young, in his early 20s, John Lewis said, you have to speak to them. Like you are the only person that can speak. And Kennedy did. And it's known as one of his best speeches. It's the only time he ever mentioned his brother's death. Mm. Um, and that was one of the only cities that did not burn that night. So, you know, hearing that story from John Lewis, that's not a story I'd ever heard before. His connection with Kennedy, how actually close they were, it kind of revealed something to me about both people. But so then when the opportunity came to do a John Lewis film, it was like all of the examining and understanding I had been doing and working through the Bobby Kennedy story, I got to like turn that lens around and right. focus from a different perspective on the same problem. So that happens a lot is, you know, you do something and it kind of leads you to another story. But um, also, I, I think just like at a very fundamental level, like I need to be like obsessed with it. Like I must figure this yeah. out, you know. And so, you know, like I'm a small liberal arts person at Swarthmore College and Swarthmore is famous for like, we had an English class we called long works because they were all like four or 500 page books. <laughs> <laughs> and we had to read one of them per week yeah. and read a paper. It, but I, what it, that did instill in me is a love of getting into the details and just like, there's always more to say, you know? I was just going to say, it seems to me that if you, like each film takes two years to produce and you must get to know the subjects of those films in a really intimate fashion. Um, and have there been times, maybe with John Lewis, where you go into that and there's a part of his life that even you didn't know about going into or a facet of his personality? Is it, Can you describe maybe? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I will tell you, going from Bobby Kennedy where, so I work with this archivist, we probably had hundreds of hours of footage of him that we had to watch in order to figure out the story. So he actually became like a living person to me, you know, like I could, I could tell you what his grimace was. I could tell you when he was mad, he clenches jaw in a certain way. Um, but what was frustrating is I wanted him there, you know, <laughs> and Netflix kept giving us notes. They're like, can you keep him alive a little longer? And I was like, guys, you know, no, I cannot. We need to move through the story. So with John Lewis, um, you know, I knew what most people know. I knew about him on the bridge. I knew yep. a little bit about, but I didn't, I didn't, there were so many parts of his history I didn't know. So that was one thing. Um, but what I think I really didn't understand was how deeply um, religious he was. 
but also how much he studied before and he and all of the other civil rights leaders, you know, and, and this I think is a way that films can help attack stereotypes. Because when you think about John Lewis, we think he's described in terms of his bravery, right? He's mm-hmm. described in terms of physically putting his body in between, you know, so in danger, in physical danger. But when you understand what he did, they studied for six months before they stepped foot onto a bridge or sat in a lunch counter or boarded a Freedom Rides bus. So really, it's actually a story about strategy. It's really interesting. Uh, and and it's not, you know, you don't have to be like a clan waving person. It's just we think about people because of their race a certain way. He's described as brave and strong. He's not described as a strategist. Yeah. And yeah. once you describe that strategy, like that's exciting because then you start to see the commonality between each of the different things they did. And you also see like these kids were really political geniuses. Yeah. I mean, to plan and execute a strategy that deconstructed and dismantled a hundred years of segregation, like that is <laughs> mind-blowing, right? Mind-blowing. The bravery is certainly part of it, but it's really how they designed and executed their plans. You know, part of the way I think you capture that in the documentary, which I thought was one of the most interesting parts, is watching John Lewis watch himself in these clips and then think through kind of like, what was he thinking then? And you can see that sort of strategic element how did you come up with that like format? Because I thought that was so, every time I saw that, um, it was both moving and touching at, at the same time. That was one of those things that I was like, this is either going to work or it's going to be a terrible disaster. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to be mocked for all of my days. Um so we uh, followed the congressman. We were filming with him. He does every year he leads a three-day pilgrimage um, where he retraces the march um, to Selma, that, that long several-day march. And he takes a guided tour of, of congressional representatives and their families. And you stop at certain places along the way, on your way to the Selma Bridge. It's a very, very moving um, few days. So as part of that, we went to Brian Stevenson's Civil Rights Museum. Um, and if you haven't spoken to Brian Stevenson, he is, I mean, just beyond, you know, moving. So he has, there's two parts to Brian Stevenson's um, exhibition. There's a museum, just Civil Rights Museum, but then there's also a memorial for lynching victims. And it is the most moving thing you've ever seen because there are so many. So we were with the congressman as he toured the museum and he comes to an exhibit that's about himself (laughs) and he's watching this footage and he's shaking his head and he said, I can't believe that's me. And then he starts telling this story that I never heard about the day that he was watching. And it gave me the idea because when you've been in, in public life for many decades, you tend to repeat the same stories over. Um, and so I wanted to kind of get him off book, get him off script. So we rented a studio in Washington, D.C. 
we constructed three giant screens. And then my editor, Jessica Congdon, and I made mini films for him that were just archival and just about his life. And then, you know, once he was there and it was very dramatic, um, I thought, you know what? He needs to face the camera. He needs to tell his own story. So it was both elements. Like I wanted him, I wanted him to see what we see, you know, and there are all those scenes of people coming up to him and thanking him. Yes. That's what we see. That is, but what we're reacting to. Those are beautiful scenes in and of themselves. Like just how much people appreciate who he was. But then seeing him think through that was a whole different way. You know, what I love about that is um, he, so that is, those scenes are actually a compilation of, we learned after filming with him for a while that we had to build in extra time because he would stop at every person (laughs) and he did it all the time. Every time, so much so that there, there's even a woman who, you know, after there was rumors about him being sick and she says, are you OK? This is like the cashier at a fast food restaurant in the, in the airport. She's like, you OK? And he's like, yeah, I'm OK. Like, these are his people. So, you know, that was a, a compilation of several different days of filming because it happened so often um, that, you know, I, I was like, this is part of his story, that he's just intertwined with our collective conscience. Don, when you look back at your collective work so far, is there a theme around that, do you think? Is there sort of, as you think about yourself, like your purpose in what you're trying to go do, what inspires you around that? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, the more I think about it, um, and I can't say this was intentional, but um, I think it's this idea that there's usually more to people than what you first see. That, you know, we all have a set of assumptions we bring to people, but that if you listen and speak with people, they will surprise you. And and I'll give you an example of that. My first film is a film called Gideon's Army, about three public defenders in the Deep South. And uh, before kind of settling on those defenders, I interviewed and filmed with, I don't know, probably 30 people. And what I learned is almost every public defender I've met, actually everyone that I've met, and I've met a lot, um, if you ask them enough about their background, you'll find that they share something in common, which is that they've all felt like outsiders and they've all felt powerless because of that. And it ignited this desire to help the little guy, the person who doesn't have a voice. And once you understand that about public defenders, it tells you so much about them because they won't quit because this is fundamental to, the, to their character, that they must fight for people. One young man told me, um, sorry about my like, <laughs> noise outside. <laughs> um, because you're on a roll right now. <laughs> on a roll. One young man told me, um, you know, so this was like an upper class white guy and his brother was special needs. 
and it was an older brother and he couldn't help his older brother and he felt completely powerless. And it just gave him this burning desire to protect people. Another young woman, African-American woman told me that her mother was a parole officer, but she used to go leave food for people. And she would say, why are you bringing food? And she would say, they don't have jobs. They don't have anything to eat. They can't keep out of prison if they have no food. And there, there, there were just all these moments, you know, one young man said uh, he had been arrested as a kid. And he's, you know, he said a line I'll never forget. He said, I know what it feels like to have on that orange jumpsuit. And so like every single one of them, every single one of them has mm-hmm. some feeling of being outsider or being powerless. And so it really propels them. And that's what you need to understand about John Lewis. That's what you need to understand about Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy was the runt of the family. He had to fight Um but he also uh, had a very independent streak. His father had sent him to go collect rents and he realized they had so much and he saw people struggling with so little. And so he was always underestimated. So he always made time to find out who, what people were about. Mm-hmm. Um, but you find these stories and they're they're like, these gifts, right? Like to, so I think I I really love exploring like what is it in someone's background that gives you a clue as to why they do what they do? Like that's to me, like that's dreamy. Totally interesting. I've got one last question for you. And this is something I try to ask um, everybody on the show because I think part of what um, the people who listen to the show uh, are always inspired. Um, by the by, the stories and uh, and by the actions of of people like yourself, but but they also know that you're very human at the same time, um, and all of us, no matter who we are, have had very difficult times uh, in our lives, and the ability to get back up. Um, and continue on um, is difficult uh, in all cases and very difficult for some. It, it, can you give maybe an example or two and maybe some lessons learned on how you've been knocked down and gotten back up and, and, um, and ways that you cope uh, with that? Um, sure. I can give you two. I mean, one is my father died when I was 11. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother had always been a stay at home person. She went back to work. Uh, we, they had financial troubles. We lost our very middle-class nice life. Like it felt like an instant. And, um, you know, that was very difficult. I was 11. My sister was eight. Everything was very confusing for us. Um, And I think it kind of left me with this, I must be, uh, I must take care of myself because things aren't guaranteed. Mm. So I kind of had a very rigid life plan, you know, um, and I became a lawyer and I was, you know, going to be very um, secure. You know, I was kind of under this misimpression that I was going to be secure. 
And then to tell you the truth, what happened is my best friend was in her 30s uh, and she died of ovarian cancer. And I thought all of this time I've been trying to protect myself and that's just not possible. And so instead what I should do is, um, and it's something Mr. Lewis says, you only pass this way once. And I thought I really need to, to follow there's something deeper that I want to do with my life. Mm-hmm. And so and I said, the next challenge that's interesting to me, I'm going to say yes to, even if it's not in my plan. <laughs> and that challenge was going to work for ABC News and going, leaving my secure, cushy law firm job and then kind of embarking on this path that led me to being a storyteller myself. And if I hadn't done that, if I hadn't taken that risk, I wouldn't be here where I'm doing like exactly what I think I'm supposed to do. Yeah. It sounds like those knocks actually were the things that helped you get to where you are today, actually. Without them, you may not. Uh, I wouldn't at all. I wouldn't. um, I think I have a certain drive but I also have, I understand that life is precious and things are unexpected and that you can't wait for things to be perfectly set up for you to follow the things that you want to actually do. So yeah. we share a lot of in common with those stories. Uh, I'll tell you about that later. But uh, Donna, I just want to thank you so much uh, for being on the show. It was such a pleasure. And um, and thanks for uh, letting us inside your life a little bit. Thank you so much.